0: In 1931, a couple dozen people decided to hobo their way on a train through the south, jumping on a boxcar in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, intending to ride through Memphis and further south, two dozen or so. Among those dozens were nine black teenagers, who were not as welcome on the boxcar as as you might expect. Some white teens tried to push them off the train, unsuccessfully started throwing rocks at them to try to get them off, saying this was the whites' only train. And they they did not succeed. Those nine black teens stayed on the train. And the white teens who tried to push them off felt so humiliated by their failure that they ran to the sheriff. To report them so somewhere around the over the border of Alabama the train was stopped and they arrested most of the people on the train including these nine black teens there were also on that boxcar two white women arrested with them who proceeded to tell the constabulary of this little town in Alabama that the teens had raped them. And so, the nine teens were jailed and put through fast kangaroo court trials, three separate ones in Scottsboro, Alabama. They came to be known as the Scottsboro Boys. They were all convicted, They had very poor representation. The defense was barely allowed to speak. They were all sentenced to die, which was the penalty for black men accused of raping white women at the time. But the injustice of it all stirred things up. With the help of the NAACP and the Communist Party of the United States, they were able to mount an appeal and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. During all of these trials and appeals, it went to the Supreme Court twice until justice of some form could be served. In the first retrial, one of the women recanted the story and admitted that they had fabricated the whole thing, and still the jury convicted all nine of them, except for the eight of them, except for the youngest 13-year-old. Still convicted them. And the judge said no, vacated the sentence, let them on their way, and the state decided to retry them again for the crime, pulling that judge off of, off of the case. And again, back to the Supreme Court, and eventually led to Powell versus Alabama, which had some of the earliest criminal justice reforms in the United States, especially around the issues of race. In uh, 19, well, no, in 20? In 2013, they were posthumously pardoned and exonerated of all their crimes. Eventually, they all were released. One of them escaped and went into hiding. And by the time they found him, oh, uh, 35 years later or so, the governor just pardoned him outright. But 2013 was, they, was when the state finally admitted they had made a huge mistake, they had carried out a huge injustice, and they were exonerated. In 1932, one year into this whole drama of trials and retrials and injustice after injustice, the blues singer and folk musician, Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly wrote a ballad about the Scottsboro Boys, and the folk music researchers of the Smithsonian got a recording of him singing the song, and uh, they also asked him, who were the Scottsboro Boys? What What are you talking about there? And here's just a little snippet. And you better watch out. The landlord gets going to jump in shout. They tell all about. I about be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke, keep the eyes open.: It was, he said, a song he was writing for every black person, the ones he knows and the ones he doesn't know, and as he says, towards the end of his narrating the story about the Scottsboro Boys in this recording, I advise everybody who's going down there to be careful, to stay woke, to keep their eyes open. Now, some of you might be having an emotional response to this word. Some of you may be having a viscerally emotional response to this word because it's taken up a lot of the national conversation over the last few years. It has become the scare quote word du jour of our political discourse and has been used liberally over the last few years as a wedge, as a scare word, as a, as a word to induce fear and ridicule and division among us. Almost every corner of Almost our society is now, of society is now sort of being of infected wokeness. with some when of this wokeness. Woke when woke infects something, infects something. Tentacles. we are seeing a woke ideology spread like a disease. The wokeness is very potent. This woke mindset virus the wokeness this is all we should be talking about Californians are getting woke yeah I'm in a woke city here small towns are under siege from left-wing wokeness as well the woke sensibility has everybody on the run woke celebrities are coming out in droves Neil Young <laughs> so woke he actually cancelled himself Colin Kaepernick LeBron James all of them are super woke actor David Schwimmer is getting majorly woke apparently he caught the brain virus and went completely insane became woke and then became bloodthirsty we're woke out of our minds vomiting out every woke platitude, eating each other alive because people aren't woke enough. You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means. Here endeth the lesson? No. How did we get here? How did we get from a word that was specifically coded for black Americans in the earliest part of the 20th century and throughout the civil rights movement, how did we get from a word that was intended to keep people paying attention to the severity of injustices they were feeling to this this boogeyman that it's turned into, this this divisive, fear-mongering wedge? And the word has a long history. Even before Lead Belly was putting down the song and those words in recorded form, as early as 1917, the Jamaican philosopher uh, Marcus Garvey, activist and philosopher, was telling the diaspora of the black community in the United States and Jamaica and throughout the world to wake up to their situation as he was trying to convince them to create some sort of a pan-African government. And into the Civil Rights era, being awake and being asleep were constant metaphors among the activists. Malcolm X once accused Martin Luther King of being asleep because that's the only way he could have had a dream, but even King himself was saying the worst thing to do was to be asleep during a revolution, to not be awake. And then in 1962, it shows up in the New York Times in a column by a Harlem journalist, uh, if you're woke, you'll... If You're Woke, You Dig It, which was an article uh, mocking the tendency of white people at the time to take black slang and completely misuse it. We'll talk about that a little more. And then as the uh, protests over George Floyd and Michael Brown and Breonna Taylor and the like started showing up, that stay woke phrase started showing up again because in the earliest part of this century, in the earlier 2000s, musicians like Erykah Badu and Childish Gambino, otherwise known as Donald Glover, were using that phrase in their music specifically to talk about injustices and the need to be awake to them. The word became prevalent at that point. It started getting used for all sorts of liberal causes throughout the United States. So prevalent it became that it made it into the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2017 with the definition, aware of and actively attentive to important societal facts and issues, especially issues of racial justice and social justice. And yet, if you scroll online long enough and you watch TV long enough, that is not how the word is being used. It's being used a lot more like that little montage I just showed you. In many ways, If You're Woke, You'll Dig It was a very prophetic piece of writing because the whole piece was highlighting the phenomenon of... Black American slang being appropriated by white people who misused it or just changed the meaning completely until the idioms had been completely taken over and black Americans found they had to stop using them because they had lost the meaning they were trying to give to them. This is what's going on here. For those who are opposed to racial justice, to social justice, the transformation of that meaning is used for much more nefarious purposes. Jonathan Charteris black is a professor of linguistics at a university in the UK. And he writes, talking about this, the intention of the word was for it to have a positive outcome for a minority group. But when another group feels threatened or challenged by it, challenged by what it is trying to ask for, they might want to subvert it in some way. And by using the enemy's weapons against them, it makes it an even more powerful tool. Or to put it a little more bluntly, the historian Michael Harriet, who... Uh, is a contributor to the website The Griot, in an interview said, when you look at the long arc of history and America's reaction to the request for black liberation, every time black people try to coin a phrase that symbolizes that desire for liberation, it will eventually become a cuss word to white people the long arc of history he's talking about, but we don't even have to look back that far in our own history to see the turnabout of these words and these phrases. Everybody remember critical race theory from just a couple of years ago? That's passé now. But it was used to describe and demonize a whole slew of things that weren't caught up in its original tent at all as a framework for studying our legal system and its effects on people of color, Black Lives Matter became turned around, became a cuss word for certain segments of the population who refused to to see that it was a, a two at the end of that phrase, insisted on stamping it only on that and then using it as a bludgeon to call other people racist were searching for racial justice. There is a long history of people weaponizing the language of justice and justice-seeking. Woke being the most recent example. For now, instead of being defined as attention to issues of justice, it is now a pejorative against people who we deem too performative in their seeking of justice, they're just putting on an act, or it is applied as a derisive word to any idea that I don't like, anything that challenges the status quo, anything that challenges my position of power, that's woke and I don't want to deal with it. And the trick that's being pulled off here is pretty obvious when we look at it from the outside, yeah? We can see what people are doing to the language and how it's being carried out through legislatures. We have to stop woke, whatever woke means, and we're going to keep it vague so it silences you. It's easy to see what's going on from the outside, and it might be tempting to just make a joke of it because it looks ridiculous on its face. The bait and switch, the transformation that is happening with these words. But if we make too much light of it, we actually start to ignore the dangers that come from playing with language and the language of justice, especially in this way. Because what happens is we sometimes start to accept that new definition. We forget maybe the one that Mary Webster slapped on to it or at the very least, especially in the media, there's a lack of a critical examination of the usage of that word in the national debate. And so, woke, the pejorative, becomes the accepted premise of the argument as it is used as a bludgeon and a curse word in the dialogue. Call something woke, and the debate is no longer about the content of the justice being sought. It's about the, rea- or the realities of the particular injustice. It's now a, a debate about woke itself and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It becomes a lump sum word. In the national conversation, especially in the media, we seem to have accepted the premise of bad actors who want to use the word to shame and silence people. And so instead of debating, it, 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 let me gather my thought here again. <laughs> when we accept the premise of the bad actors, we're debating on their turf. We're not having conversation we intended to have about justice. We've, we've moved into that territory. And the arguments are no longer about the content of specific injustices, but about a straw man of a process. That has been created. And ultimately, the use of the word in that way silences the voices of those who are suffering the most, the silences, the voices of those who are indeed seeking that justice. That is what that weaponization does. And when the language of those who are seeking justice is twisted and turns against them, it just pulls those voices right out of the debate shuts them down for a little while longer delays the conversation that needs to be had but it's not only a danger to the idea the marketplace of ideas or the debate we're having at a national level it's also a danger to our own internal souls to a point the the transformed definition The cuss word definition starts to creep into our personal lexicons. We start to take it into our own self-conceptualization and how we judge even our own internal structures and the communities that we are living in. It starts to get used without thought whenever people start to get uncomfortable about change or conversations they don't want to have or concepts they're not ready to embrace yet, so much so to the point that uh, we start to see woke as the pejorative creeping up into our own internal conversations in Unitarian Universalism. If somebody's uncomfortable with the justice being asked for by a marginalized group, oh, we're getting too woke if we're, if we're jumping onto that. If we're listening to the voices of our youth and what they're telling us about the world they're growing up into and we don't want to deal with that, the youth are getting woke. It's crept into the Unitarian Universalist debate about where we are going to the extent that just a few years ago, one minister who was running for the board of the UUA actually said in an event to youth and young people in the Unitarian Universalist Association and marginalized identities within it. I understand you're unhappy, but maybe you should go start your own religion, essentially. I don't want to talk about this. Go do your own thing. The word gets used to shame and deride Necessary conversations. The bad actors of the demagogues, utilize this technique of transforming words into their own meanings as a means to control a narrative, to talk about, say, a past that was perfect that never actually existed in the first place. They do it to weaponize the differences among us, to keep us debating at the surface But as we internalize it, as we take it into that personal level, that use of the word to silence, to cut people off, is often a misguided tool for self-preservation against the shame and the discomfort we might feel as a result of difficult conversations. That's what woke is being used for in the political realm as well. We don't want to teach African-American history in the schools anymore. We're going to ban advanced placement African-American history because we don't want white kids to feel uncomfortable or ashamed. The quiet part has been said loud enough times. We know what people are trying to get at. It's uncomfortable. I feel awkward. I feel some shame, perhaps, in the part I have played or maybe think I might have played. So I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to think about the history. I don't want to think about the impact of past actions of my ancestors. I don't want to think about how that has influenced present situations and maybe how I might be benefiting from them or not. And humans being human, we will do anything to avoid, to shield ourselves, to diminish feelings of shame within. Going back to Brene Brown, one of the most powerfully destructive emotions in our vocabulary of emotion, it shuts everything down. And so we call things that make us uncomfortable woke. We belittle and dismiss them and stop the conversation to avoid the discomfort. But, hearkening back to last week, the work of justice, The search for equity in our human relationships, in our institutions, in the world, sits at the core, at the core values of who we are as Unitarian Universalists, of what kind of world we are seeking to build together. And as I brought up Brian Stevenson last week and talking about the work of building equity, one of his four rules was we're going to have to be uncomfortable. As he said in the video I showed last week, I have searched through history for moments of justice where justice has been done, that were done without any discomfort for anybody, and I cannot find them. Discomfort is part of the process of building the better world, building the beloved community we seek, because we do have to address a whole herd of elephants in the room sometimes. And I said last week, too, that some of that discomfort that can be a growing pain for us, we can instill in ourselves just by taking the time to question what we think we know about any situation, question the validity of our own opinions, question whether or not we have mistaken our hot takes to the absolute truth or not. The work we are called to do embraces discomfort. And in the long run, we can't avoid the avoidance techniques. We are living in time of huge social upheaval. Injustice still abounds. Miscarriages of justice still happen, things of serious import that affect the lives of people to a detriment are still happening. We are still seeking justice in our world for all of those situations. Things akin to the miscarriage of justice with the Scottsboro Boys. And this can only go so long before our discomfort in trying to fix things is inevitable. And we need to be able to explore that within ourselves and amongst ourselves and not dismiss it. Because that is the way in the examination of our own assumptions, of our own discomfort, of how we are relating to the world around us when people are speaking up for the suffering and misjustice that they are going under, that's how we find our path. That is how we find our path to justice and to equity in the long run. That is how we build justice and equity and compassion in our world. We build the world community that we espouse in our principles. It's an election year this year And we're entering what I call, dismissively, I will admit, the silly season when language games of this type abound. When we shift the meaning of words for the sake of our own search for power. When we buy into somebody else's definition of something because it's easier to feel posed than to feel connected. That game is going to persist. We're watching time right now over the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion in schools and corporations. We've reduced it to DEI, an acronym. And here's the thing, just on a side note, that's that's the thing about slang and acronyms and, and abbreviations shorthand. It makes it easy to communicate ideas with one another, especially if we're on the inside of the group that's come up with the slang. But at the same time, it also makes it very easy to divorce that word from the original intent it was created with and wrap another agenda around it. That is the heart of what is going on in our discourse today. We're in for a long year of this. We are in for a long, many years of this. We've been playing these language games for a long time. And my point today is this, beyond the need for our own discomfort and the examination of it. Do not fall for the con. Do not let The nefarious definition, the twisted definition become the definition of the words we are using in our discourse. Serious injustice is still happening in this world today. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the values and the principles we share. Justice and equity and compassion and a world community, a beloved community. Refuse to play the game Just say no, refuse to be shamed or silenced for believing what you believe and acting for justice in the ways that you act for justice just because someone dismisses you or shames you as woke. Do not fall asleep while this continues to play out. I advise everybody to go along through that but stay woke, keep the eyes open.